Hey friends, if this is your first time listening to the Spillway podcast, we encourage you to start at the prologue and work your way up to this sequential episode. If you choose to forge on despite this plea, keep these four things in mind. First, we are a serial. Our work is relational and the beginning episodes are about building trust, familiarity, and shared frameworks and contexts. And also white people talking to white people about white people things is a newer concept for a lot of folks. We don't want to push people into the deep end. So please, save yourself the headache. We'll be here when you're caught up. Two, stay in your own lane. We build space to examine, critique, hold, and love white people as we navigate pushback and relapse in the mechanics of white supremacy and white shame within white culture and white culture alone. And that's however much we can in the fluidity of culture. Three, we're in the combined fabric of destiny. Our humanity, as Dr. King defines, is interrelated. Everyone is caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. I can never be what I ought to be until you are what you ought to be. And you can never be what you ought to be until I am what I ought to be. This is the interrelated structure of reality. That's point one. Point 3.5. We are a piece of the broader racial justice movement. We're not trying to divert resources nor claim that we're a one-stop shop. Being in cross-cultural community, educating ourselves and being in good relation is unquestionably vital to our work. This show is about white people cleaning and mending our own section of the fabric and the work we need to do before, during and after showing up in shared spaces. And lastly, one right way. This form of grounding empathy, compassion, patience, and understanding at the core of white culture may or may not work for everyone. That's okay. There are other resources out there. We all share the same goal as beautifully defined by Adrienne Marie Brown to create a world where everyone experiences abundance, access, pleasure, human rights, dignity, freedom, transformative justice, peace. We long for this. We believe it is possible. We're trying this approach, but that doesn't mean that it's the best or right approach for you. If it doesn't apply, let it fly. And with that, for better or worse, we began entering the spillway. And how boring would that be? Oh, that one really damaged us, huh? Happily ever after. Oh, God, don't even get me started. I mean, you can get me started if you want, but we'll be here for a while. So buckle in. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I think about every single close relationship that I've been in, mm-hmm. there has been conflict. Because that's life. But we were raised to be like, okay, well, there's conflict in this relationship. So that means right. Right. it's no good. Yeah. Conflict helped me understand myself better. Mm-hmm. But that was only, I think part of that too is though that like, I wanted to understand the conflict more and my mm-hmm. actions and how they contributed and co-created a reality in which that conflict could occur. I'm laughing, not because what you just said is like, you are probably the only person who was like, I actively wanted to go towards the fire and figure out how it started while it was still on fire. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's burnt you a couple yeah. of times, but also keeps my therapist busy. Keeps <laughs> your th- bless, bless, bless that human's heart. Bless. Blessings, no take backs. Uh, no, but it's true. 
you yeah. grow. I mean, I don't think it's the only way you can grow in a no, relationship. No, 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 it's no, through no, conflict. No, no. But it's a very important part of how we learn. Yeah, it is. It is. Like I even think about like love languages mm-hmm. and how I didn't even know that they were love languages until I had to use that exact language of like, oh, this feels weird that the language that I'm using isn't landing for you in the same way. Mm. And then that's when partners have been like, oh no, this is the way that I express my love. And I think it's the same thing when we're in conflict of like, oh wait, I feel like I'm receiving this in a different or weird way. Is that actually conflict or are you just expressing yourself in ways that feel normal or like natural to you? Right. And how am I receiving your information? I did an Italian once. Okay. They were so loud, so loud. And I always felt like I was being yelled at. Oh, really? I wonder who else is Italian and loud in your life. <laughs> hey, Jenny. <laughs> it was not me, by the way. Person. I, no, it was not you. It was not you. Mm-hmm. I had to say to this person, it's like, um, uh, I didn't, I wasn't intending for the conversation to, to go to this like really heightened or like elevated place. And they were like, what are you talking about? Mm-hmm. And I was like, I just, I just feel like you're yelling at me right now. Um, you're just being very loud. And then that's when I literally got like the Italian hand of like, I'm Italian. What are you? <laughs> <laughs> I will smack you. And that is my symbol of love. And, but but all, like, not all Italians are going to smack you as their symbol of love. But this, that's just like what this really lovely human was saying. Right. Like, this is, this is how I respond. Yeah. yeah. Right. Right. Oh, my. How did we get here? I don't know. I kind of we went on a we went on a journey. We did. We really and we ended up journey. in relationship, which is what we're talking about anyway. Right. right, right because right. I think this is also well, no, it is the first time that we've had more than one other person. Mm. So that changes the dynamic, too. Like, right. how are we going to talk to each other? Like, what, how, what does that look like? What are we? Right. You know. What I think too, there's this thing that white people do when we get together. Mm-hmm. Of <laughs> I'm really <especially>, excited. <laughs> like, especially the white liberals. Mm-hmm. We love to get together. And then whoever says the like the the most shaming thing, mm-hmm. other white people are so quick to be like, yes, absolutely. Yes, yes, yes. Right. And really try to dub down on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I feel like that's just part of the shame culture that we're yeah. so deeply invested in of, oh, let me also shame white people so that the tension is not on me. Right. Like I'm going to line up behind this person so you can't see me. <laughs> right. I will be in a perfect cutout, the perfect silhouette cutout. So you cannot see me at all. So you can't see me at all. So nope. that you, so that if you do know I'm there, you know that I'm on the right, the right side of things. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I'm so excited to be in a room full of white people that acknowledge this. Yes. That are going to be like, actually, we're not going to use shame in this conversation. I know. Yeah. <laughs> what are we supposed to call this? Like, I was thinking of like white people doing the work. Mm-hmm. Or like. What about like something like, so it's a, so it's, we're kind of going around in a circle. Like a focus group. Like a focus group. Like the white people focus group. Like a white people focus group, but that sounds kind of clinical. <laughs> Hello. 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 We're a white people focus group. 
What about, oh my God, Whites of the Round Table? I hate you so much. (laughs) (laughs) The Whites of the Round Table. I hate me too. It's okay. Wow. I mean, right though? What is the story? It's the King Arthur's like court, right? You're asking the wrong person. With Sir Lancelot. I don't know the Alamo. So, (laughs) yeah, but yes. Yep. Camelot? Is that what this is all about? Okay. This is all about Camelot, and the sword and the stone is also a part of that story. So, we're coming back to Disney. You're welcome. You are a gift. You are a gift and a treasure. No, just here to surf. Hello, and welcome to the Spillway Podcast. I'm Lauren. And I'm Jenny. We believe three things. Hurt people can hurt people. White people are hurting. And our healing is possible. This is a podcast devoted to understanding the complex nature of living as white people in America. Without supremacy or shame. A few months ago, I started an organization, The Spillway, around supporting white people to work through perpetrator-induced traumatic stress, pits, and intergenerational trauma. I offer this service with the acknowledgement that healing work is merely one mechanism within a larger network required to sustain our collective movement towards racial justice. I seek to grow services available rather than redistribute where we put our efforts and funding. And to get this message out there, I've asked one of the most compassionate, ferociously tender, hilarious, and incredibly smart humans I know, Jenny, to join me in this podcasting journey. Jenny and I come from similar yet separate backgrounds. Importantly, we offer incredibly different perspectives, sometimes just by who we are as people, and other times by the very different identities that we hold. We are committed to building compassion, understanding, empathy, and patience into the present and future of whiteness and white culture. We cannot change the past, but we can change the future through the actions we take today. We seek to embody the work of James Baldwin, Sonia Renee Taylor, Kazuhaga, Resma Menakam, and Kai Cheng Tam and countless others, asking for white people to, in so many words, get our shit together. Since starting this spillway, there's been consistent feedback, sometimes within the same space, that white people are engaging this work with closed hearts and closed minds. This work can be difficult and beautiful. It is an exercise in vulnerability, in unlearning perfectionism, with real-world consequences in an age of seven-second judgments. We hope the spillway and our living in it can give others the courage that is needed to join us in this work. We know that attempting to be vulnerable and consenting to learn in public is incredibly terrifying work, and yet we have to start somewhere. Conversations of race and racism aren't going away anytime soon, and given our incredibly different places in the world, we're trying to create a middle ground where white people can talk together and create action around the paradox of being white in the U.S., where we are simultaneously the perpetrators and the victims of race and racism. We seek to embody the work of countless activists of color who have been calling white folks to seek our own healing around race and racism. So here we are, two white people committing to the work of individual and collective healing around race and racism for white people. Healing ourselves is no one's responsibility but our own. 
Let's heal together and grow to stop the impacts of race and racism in the lives of people of color and our lives as well. Welcome to our podcast. Lynn Burnett is a former high school history teacher and the founder of CrossCulturalSolidarity.com and the White Anti-Racist Ancestry Project. At Cross-Cultural Solidarity, he has built over 100 racial justice history resources and aims to turn the site into a place where people can plug into the entire universe of racial justice history. The premise of the White Anti-Racist Ancestry Project is that it will be easier to mobilize masses of white people for racial justice if they have powerful and inspiring examples of white anti-racism to guide and inspire them. Based on that premise, the project aims to mainstream essential stories and lessons from white anti-racist history. Jill Nagel has been published or reviewed more than 150 times in the genres of business, personal growth, fiction, nonfiction, poetry, and social commentary, including American Book Review, The Woman's Review of Books, Zendesk Blog, and many more. She founded Evolutionary Workplace and Wisdom of the Body Beyond Talk Therapy and co-founded Awake Parent Perspectives. She is a regular contributor to Afrosafiophile, and you can see her on medium.com with those articles and a link in our show notes. With Dr. Cleo Minago, she facilitates the 22nd Century Leaders Program for white anti-racist leaders whose next cohort starts in September 2022. And last but not least is Jared Carroll, who is the founder of jaredcarroll.com, a consulting firm specializing in guiding white people to confront racism and be unapologetic anti-racists. As a trusted advisor, he guides executives, people managers, and dedicated change agents at Fortune 500 companies, startups, and nonprofits. He's a sought-after professional speaker, panel moderator, leadership coach, and facilitator of difficult conversations. Jared's storytelling approach inspires and influences individuals and groups worldwide. His first book, A White Guy Confronting Racism, An Invitation to Reflect and Act, was released in November 2021. An avid reader, accomplished musician, and active meditator, he lives with his family in the San Francisco Bay Area. Uh, Folks who are listening in, don't really know what the amazingness that I get to see right now. And so it may be helpful for us to actually situate your name with your voice that way we know who's talking. So I'm going to maybe just like throw this out there. There's like a little popcorn question just so we can get names with voices. Uh, But if you could introduce yourself uh, in the ways that you like to introduce yourself, but then also if you could add the work that you do, but if you could tell us as if it were a Hollywood blockbuster movie title or tagline, what would that be? All right, I'll go first. I'll go first. This is this is Jared Carroll. Uh, he, him, pronouns calling in from Oakland, California, the 510 for people uh, unfamiliar. Um, and I work with white folks. Really, my specialty is facilitating conversations, just holding space for people to have the conversation. Um, and gosh, if I were to put a, a tagline, which is interesting because I'm actually preparing for a TEDx talk and I have to kind of come up with like the title of my talk, and it's going to be something taken off of the Lao Tzu quote, uh, if you want to awaken all of, uh, humanity, awaken all of yourself. So something around that, it probably won't mm. be that exactly, 
but something around that idea of to do this work, uh, you have to really do the work uh, on yourself, which I have been doing for decades, mm-hmm. as I imagine all of us are, have been. It's really lovely, Jared. Thank you. Welcome. I'm Jill Nagel. My company is Evolutionary Workplace, and I help white people dismantle white supremacy from the inside out. And often that involves helping them find their own superpower that they weren't aware of, because not everybody can or should try to do this work in the same way. Mm, That's a really lovely way to put that. Thank you. Welcome, Jill. Yeah, my name is Lynn Burnett, he, him, East Bay, California, and I run a website called crossculturalsolidarity.com, uh, which has over 100 racial justice history resources, and I'm hoping to build that into a landing place for people to plug into the whole universe of racial justice history, and I'm also building a project called the White Anti-Racist Ancestry Project, and the basic premise of that project is that it will be easier for us to mobilize masses of white people if they have powerful and inspiring examples of what truly excellent white anti-racism looks like. So I'm not sure how to put it in the Hollywood form, but that's what I'm up, that's what I'm up to. Thank you and welcome. Why don't we just like jump in with some of these questions and make this as conversational as we want it to be. Uh, this is such a lovely, I just feel such a welcoming and excited presence to be here to talk about uh, whiteness and how we are white people showing up doing the work of dismantling white supremacy and being in fellowship with each other. I'm wondering uh, with you folks, what does, or do you feel a sense of community with other white people? And if so, where are we feeling that? Or where are we trying to find that kind of connection? I feel some of it right here. Um, I don't know you so much, Lauren, and you, Jenny. And by the way, I'm also um, on Ohlone land in Oakland, Ohlone land, AKA Oakland. But um, do you hear that echo? Yeah, we heard it too. Hi everyone. It's Lauren here about two weeks after recorded this conversation. Uh, for some context, I emailed Jill, Jared, and Lynn the pitch for this episode on a Monday. What you're listening to happened only four days later. Given the short turnaround time, Lynn ended up going over to Jill's house to have a quieter space, which is more conducive to podcast recording. Jill and Lynn are physically in the same room during this otherwise largely virtual conversation. This echo is going to go away. It just took a couple of minutes to figure out the audio logistics. But even rehearing it now, I love this echo because it reminds me of the tremendous gift that it is to be in the same physical spaces building a movement of social equity and justice. Let's return to the conversation. When I started doing this pro-culturators or white anti-racist series, Jared and Lynn were two of the first people that I found. They reached out to and they said yes, and I was so excited. And I started getting to know both of them for a little while. I was meeting with Jared informally at the cafe. and We would talk about this stuff. And I'd like to re-up that, and like for Lynn and Jared to meet each other since we're all in the same place. But those things have meant a tremendous amount to me because I've been at this a long time. You know, a few decades ago, when I first started talking about this, I couldn't talk to other white people about it. Even my best friends, they would get defensive. They would sort of say, oh, Jill's got her little cause, you know, kind of, oh, you know, a little bit of kind of patronizing or condescending distancing there. 
I, I couldn't get anyone interested. And to me, it was such a vital issue. And so to have other white people who care and not, not only care, but who are building such a significant portion of their lives around this feels extremely validating and welcoming to me. Um, so yes, <laughs> I do feel like these folks here and some others too have really felt like necessary community for me. Yeah, Jill and uh, Lauren, I love that. I love the just the question, you know, do we find community with, you know, with other white folks? I'll say that not, no, not necessarily, but not, 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 not. And what I mean by that is this idea, you know, when we talk about like belonging, you know, and, you know, Brene Brown, I've been influenced by her a lot in, in my work in general, and especially my anti-racist work, this idea like to, to belong, we have to belong to ourselves first and really like know who we are, what, you know, why we care, why we're doing what we're doing, you know, all that stuff. So I feel like I'm pretty solid on, on that, which I'm sure we'll get into, you know, in this conversation. And so it's less about, you know, where are the white people to be in community with? It's about, here's what I, here's who I am and here's what I'm about. And there's so many different communities that I'm in, professional, social, athletic, musical. I mean, there's just a lot of different communities that are, some are all white, some are mixed, some are, you know, they're just, they're, they're, they are what they are. And so I look at it as like, you know, if you're interested in these conversations, like, let's talk about it. And if you're not, then that's okay too. But if you're not and you're opposed to it or you have something that's going against my values or, or you know, the, the communities that I'm trying to create, then, you know, then we'll have a different kind of conversation. So it's less about really, for me, like seeking community and trying to find communities, but it's like when I do have it, it's like, it's awesome. I think like many people, I have a desire for stronger community and kind of coming out of uh, the COVID moment, you know, it's feeling really alive for me that I want to you know, do some rebuilding of community. When I work with different white anti-racist groups around the country, that's something that feels alive in pretty much every organization that I work with. There's a desire for stronger community. As for community with white people specifically, it feels important for me to have white anti-racist community. And it also feels important for me to have, to be in community with other white people who are not necessarily organizing their lives around strong anti-racist commitments. You know, both of those things feel important to me. Right now, I'd say there's a core, maybe half dozen people, locally, white folks who I really connect with strongly, who I really trust, who I really admire, who I feel a deep bond of connection with. And even if we only see each other once, you know, once or twice a year, I feel like that's kind of my local community or the core of it. And then I also feel a sense of community uh, of white anti-racist community nationally. I think every time I'm working with groups across the country, even if I only see those groups or those people like one time, I have a sense that I'm in community with them. Like we're in this together. Even when things get difficult or get tense or people aren't necessarily on the same page or people are giving each other pushback or whatever's happening. Like, I feel like that's also part of being in community. Like I feel like even at the national level, I feel like um, the world of white anti-racism, I almost feel like we're in a village together. It's kind of like when you're in a village, you have to figure out how to work together and get along together in some way. So I've had moments like during workshops where I'm kind of like, all right, there's like some moment of disagreement or some tension, but we're still here. We're mm -hmm. still in community. Let's work. Let's work together. 
And then I also have this desire to return to community with white people who are not necessarily steeped in a strong white anti-racist commitment. And I used to have that in a spiritual community, but because I had some political disagreements with that community, I left during the Trump administration. And I have yet to I have yet to rebuild a strong sense of community with white people who might just be focused on other things in their in their life. And that feels important that I do that as well. Why does it why why does it in particular feel important to you to have that? It feels to me like it's important for me just to I'm I'm trying to think of how to say this. Is it more on like a personal level or is it is it also connected to the work that you do? It's connected to the work that I do, but not in such a way where I'm like trying necessarily it doesn't feel important for me to be around just let's just say ordinary white folks. Mm-hmm. because I want to help move them in. It's not about that. Oh, okay. It's, it's more like just being present, just being present with, with people who don't necessarily share all of my commitments and being in community with them, not for the sake of any strategy or, or moving them, but, but almost just for the sake of me being able to, to, to be comfortable with and to be in connection with um, just the, the broader experience of how white people are showing up in the world and what their experience is. Yeah, to, to reach out into an experience that maybe you don't know anything about or, or feel connected to. Um, I think that's really important just in life in general to not only be attracted to things that we agree with um, and people that we completely agree with. <laughs> um, one of our other guests was talking about being willing to be in conflict with others um, in, in a supportive, you know, environment, um, is, is really important in building community. And I think that I was attracted to what you were saying. Cause I felt like that was kind of, um, yeah, Jenny, me too. And uh, I'm glad you're saying that. Cause Lynn, um, I've been heavily influenced. It feels like forever, but it was just last summer. I read this thin volume by Adrian Marie Brown called We Will Not Cancel Us. Yeah, I see some head nods. And it it really gets at what you said, Lynn, and then what you were just kind of supporting that, Jenny, the idea, like, just because we're, you know, we're all, whatever, in this work together, mm-hmm. it, we all come at it from, I mean, even in these, in our opening kind of statements, right? We, we've kind of, I, I've felt, we're all coming at it for different reasons and at different right. angles with different skill sets and different uh, you know, kind of hows and whys and all these things. And that's like, how, how, how would it be otherwise? And so I think there's sometimes this, this dogma of like, wait a second, you're doing it slightly a little bit different than I'm doing it or than I would like to do it. And that's wrong. Mm-hmm. And so in this book, she talks about like, basically what you said, Lynn, like, wait a second, is that really the, 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 the conversation we want to be having? There's so much opportunity to, build community to build movements across differences and bridge differences where there's so much more we can do together with all our different angles and skill sets and, and et cetera. So that really resonated with me. Yeah. We talk a lot. Well, at least this first season, we've had a lot of um, discussions with other guests and with each other, uh, Lauren and I, about how prevalent cancel culture is within the white anti-racist movement how do we make space for white people to heal and racial equality work with that? Or, you know, is it, is it even necessary? Which I think it is, but uh, I'm interested to know what you guys think. I think uh, this work contains a lot of paradoxes 
And to me, the wonderful thing about a paradox is that it is an apparent contradiction. An apparent contradiction is not a real contradiction. So there's apparently a contradiction between doing anti-racist work and centering white people. And for me, the way to look at this is that centering white people, there's different stages, different levels of the work. And so if somebody says, hey, I want to create a series about anti-racism and somebody says, well, what about racism against white people in this sort of knee-jerk, reactionary, unexamined way? Mm -hmm. That's an example of centering white people that takes away from dismantling white supremacy, takes away from anti-racist work. And I think when people say centering whiteness, they're often talking about that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. However, there's another stage where white people who get into this work if you get it, you start to wade in a little bit, you go, whoa, racism impacts me too. Mm -hmm. I've been brainwashed. I've been acculturated to these things that are just as much a part of perpetuating problem as stopping violence against black and brown people. Something had to happen to Derek Chauvin for him to be able to commit such a grisly murder. What happened to him? That's where I think um, centering whiteness comes in when we center it in order to examine and repair the damage that's been done to white people that could allow them, that could create the conditions, the, 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 psyche, the psychic mindsets that would produce such violence. And in order to do that, we need to make space for, for example, white tears. There's a paradox because in one circumstance, white tears could endanger black and brown bodies right. and another in a safe space white tears may be exactly what's necessary for a white person to heal from the trauma that could enable such violence in the first place right that's something we've we've talked about a lot also because you know i'm hyper aware of white women tears right um and we talk about that a lot because i cry literally all the time Lauren and I have just about anything. It doesn't, you know, whatever it is, I'm crying. Lauren and I have known each other for decades and this is just true, but now I'm hyper aware of when I feel emotional and it is all about context, right? Like if I'm in a space and my tears are going to ne negatively affect, uh, affect people of color, that's different than if I'm in the space with you guys and I'm explaining how I feel grief over what something I did or something that happened um, related to race and racism. So it is, I think I agree with you. I think it's a context thing. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, I mean, even before you just said that I wrote down context is everything. Mm -hmm. So maybe some of you have read Michelle Kim's book, uh, the wake up and she lives in Oakland too. She's a, um, she's a five one Oh, um, and she's awesome. So if you don't follow her you know, on, on LinkedIn and other places, you know, please do. And her book is great and it's so multifaceted and dimensional and awesome in many ways. But one thing she emphasizes is just that, that context is, is everything. I think sometimes the question, you know, is there, is there, or should there be, or how is thing for white people like a, you know, a thing or necessary? Like, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And it's in, it's within, you know, it's the context in which that is, uh, you know, achieved or, or worked towards is, is, is really important. Something I've been thinking about, especially more lately, like uh, that it is about like my own healing, but not in like a narcissistic, egoistic way, 
but like kind of what more towards what Jill was trying to capture. Like, how do I heal so that I can show up more consistently, more effectively, more genuinely, authentically, et cetera? Yeah, I think the thing that I want to lift up is that, you know, if you're a white person and you're wrestling with experiences of guilt or shame or feeling embarrassed or being worried that you're racist or being worried that people will perceive you as racist or if you're feeling defensive um, or if you have fear, you know, and anxiety around black and brown people, or if you're turning on Fox News and you're feeling, you know, a fear reaction to the narratives there, like none of that is a positive life experience, you know, like all of that is taking away from you having a beautiful life. So I feel like there's healing to do there. But the other thing I want to say is that in terms of showing up for the movement, in terms of building a beautiful world that works for all of us, like the movement needs us to have vibrant, strong spirits. The, the movement needs us to have clarity and energy and a spirit of connection and solidarity. And it's only when we work through the guilt and the shame and the things that need to be healed that we can show up for the movement in the way that the movement really needs us to, to show up. All of those emotions are things that drain us. They drain our energy. Um, they take our focus away from, from other more beautiful and productive things that we could potentially focus on. They prevent us from connecting more deeply with people. And so ultimately, when we do that healing, we just on a personal level have a more beautiful and inspired life that we can live, but we also show up and create the world that we want to live in. I really appreciate how there's this really solid through line through this conversation about context. And I think we in this space have found ourselves in many different contexts, um, talking with white people about anti-racism. And one of the, the pieces of the spillway is to of, in so many words, try to study whiteness and study white people so that we can find these themes so that they become less opaque, so that we can start to actually hold them tangibly. And we define them as white people for white people in a neutral, however much we can, space with both the positives and the negatives of the experience of being white. So in trying to find those themes of what whiteness and white people are or do or don't do, I'm curious if you find do you find uh, consistent pushback in themes when you work with white people on anti-racism? What do those themes sound like or look like or how do they show up? Because sometimes they're not actual words. Sometimes they show up physically uh, and we embody that kind of response. What, what, what's the pushback that's happening in our workshops or in our conversations and our relationships? Well, do, do we have a, a couple of weeks? <laughs> <laughs> No, Lauren, it's such a it's such a great question, um, and I love how you distinguish. And I think people who do this work, whatever their racial background, understand it. But it's important the difference between whiteness and white people, right? And I think that goes back to the previous question discussion we were having, right? That you know, when when we're centering, uh, you know, around centering, right? Like, in a way, we have to we have to bring whiteness to the to the forefront. Is that centering? I don't know. Maybe it is, right? so that we can recognize it and talk about it and start to understand it so that we can be better white people. So it's, you know, that's, I think that's important, but for me, pushback, ugh, I mean, there's so many buckets of pushback. Um, I try, well, I wouldn't say I try, but just the nature of my work, my kind of my day job and also my, my other kind of work is mostly working with people who are already at least leaning in a little bit. 
And so the pushback isn't like, you know, the, this is stupid or, you know, what about it? I mean, there's a little bit of that, but it's really more around the, the discomfort. And so it, it centers the, well, I don't know how to have that conversation, or I don't know if I want to challenge so-and-so because he'll probably get angry if I call him on his racism. So it's centering the feelings and the, and the, you know, the very real relationships of, you know, that white people think about when they're not thinking about, you know, racism. And that's, you know, pretty typical. And so I think though that's the pushback, but then I'm trying to say, all right, well, let's put it in perspective. So what's more important, your discomfort at maybe having a tough conversation with your white colleague or your white, you know, family member, or, you know, the, the stopping or at least mitigating the harm that is being done by not having these conversations to people of color. So I think it's that kind of uh, dynamic that I see a lot. And I would imagine, you know, Lynn and, and Jill, you do as well. With these buckets, um, with our, cons- I think, yeah, this consistent feedback of, uh, uncomfortability of the fear of leaning into these new conversations or uh, new relationships that we're having. I'm also trying to figure out how we center love in these relationships, or we center more compassion and empathy and understanding in these conversations of racial justice and racial, racial equity. And, and as we were talking earlier about cancel culture uh, and accountability abuse within anti-racism work, I'm wondering how we shift this paradigm into one that is more compassionate and more connective and receptive to connectivity than about shaming and expanding shame culture within justice work. Um, I had a a personal turning point in 2015, shortly after Dylan Roof had killed a room full of Black churchgoers in their Mm -hmm. Bible study group. And I was looking at uh, a picture of him and he had that same sort of glazed over, dissociated, dysregulated look that my autistic son would get in his eyes just before he had yet another violent tantrum. He's now a lot better. Um, but I had this moment where this, this knowing just kind of suffused my body, which was, I am not separate from him. The same system that created him also created me. We are part of the same collective white psyche. And right around this time, I noticed that the white people around me were doing and saying things pretty much exactly the opposite of that, calling him a monster, calling for him to be locked up forever and ever. And I thought, wait a second, you know, from this sense of connection, I started to um, formulate the idea for these white on white workshops, how to talk to the other white people. And I brought my somatic body-oriented um, counseling skills in to help people slow down their reactions to what, like, what happens in our bodies when we monsterify, if you will, <laughs> and even if you want another white person, oh my God, what's actually happening within us? How do we slow that down and be with it and consider, just consider the possibility of engaging them as another human being? Because if we were members of the same family, and in some profound way, we are all members of the same family, we would draw them in. Just like when my son was having a tantrum, I wasn't going to monstrify him. I wanted to draw him in and say, what's going on? How did this happen? How do we make you feel more comfortable and safe so that 
you to do this. And as white people, I think that's where, you know, some things that Lynn and Jared have mentioned about doing the work within ourselves. How do we expand our capacity for being with the hard feelings that come up when we see other white people doing violent and harmful, sometimes fatal things? And I'm going to try to weave the pushback that I receive together with the question that Lauren brings forward about how do we love each other? How do we support each other? You know? So I get uh, three primary types of, I would say, critique. And I would say that they're, uh, well, first I'll just lay them out. The first type of critique that I get is that lifting up, learning from, teaching, talking about white anti-racist history, there's a concern that it might veer into white centering or that it might veer into white saviorhood. The second type of critique that I get is a concern that if people are giving money to fund the project that I'm working on, then they're giving money to a white person to write about white stuff. And there's a concern that if people are giving their financial resources to that, that it means that they're not giving those financial resources to black and brown led racial justice efforts. And then the third critique that I, that I get, I would say happens in like one out of every three workshops that I do. There's someone in the workshop who says, you know what, learning from the legacy of Anne Braden or whoever it is, is really interesting, but we're working on a specific local concrete issue right now. Like maybe we're trying to fight off the school board takeovers or the CRT backlash or whatever it is. And even though the life of Anne Braden is interesting, I don't know how it's going to help us and our organization, you know, do a better job at fighting the specific local battle that we happen to be fighting. In other words, there's a critique that learning from the history and the legacy of how white anti-racism has been done well in the past to some people it feels more it feels too abstract but the thing that i want to emphasize here to connect it to lauren's question about like love and solidarity and connection is that when these critiques come up in 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 the space of community then even if people have really strong feelings around them if we have an opportunity to talk these out we develop much more nuanced understandings of how white anti-racism takes place. In the context of community, we can evolve through these critiques. And I think that each of those critiques is valid in its own way and not only worthy of exploring, but I would say very important to explore. And when we are able to discuss those in the context of community, not only do we develop more nuanced understandings, but we also build community through exploring some of those topics, you know, through exploring the very topics that there might be some edges around, you know, that's often where a lot of community building happens, where it gets into a more toxic kind of pushback, typically in my experience is in an online setting. Mm-hmm. You know, if it's on some social media and some response, people can feel like if, if someone feels like I'm here <clears throat> countering my project for the first time, and they think I'm centering whiteness. Sometimes they, as a white person, they, they might have a feeling that their role as a white anti-racist, if they see something that's white centering in their eyes, that their role is to stamp that out, you know? And so when that happens, there's no nuance, there's no community, Mm-mm. there's no connection, you know? And so I just really want to encourage anyone listening to this that what we need to be doing as white anti-racists is having conversation, is listening to each other, is not jumping to conclusions and judgments, because there are a lot, you know, I can respond well to each of those critiques, but it takes a lot of nuanced thinking 
and we and we have to be willing to at least hear out where the other person is coming from and in my experience when we do that once again it builds community more nuanced understandings uh and it's typically in my experience just on the social media side of things that the pushback can you know be negative rather than positive and it's easy on the internet right the anonymity of the internet because you can make your profile private and put a picture of the sea on there and and say anything you want um without really feeling the consequences of the other person's reaction. And I'm not saying the internet is bad or social media is bad. I think it builds a lot of great community. And especially during COVID, you know, it was how we stayed connected to each other um, in a lot of ways for a lot of people. But I think, I think one of the, the flip sides of that is, is that, and I don't, I don't believe that the people believe that they're being cruel for no reason. Like, I think a lot of folks have this feeling that like, oh, like you said, I have to stamp this out, but they're not, the other person is just a little circle with a face on it, right? And some text, they're not actually a living human being breathing in, in that mindset, right? And so you just write whatever you think you need to write to get somebody to stop doing or saying whatever they're doing or saying without being connected to them, their humanity. And I think that's so easy on the internet. Yeah. And I think when not only is, um, are those conversations building community, but they're also building a really vital skill set, which we all need if we're going to survive on this planet, you know, (laughs) slowing down, tuning in. um, And that's, what I've been really excited about this last year. In fact, I've even started um, going through, like oftentimes on on LinkedIn, for example, a black person will post something black positive, like Emmanuel Acho, for example, posted about his, um, he wore a pinstripe suit to an awards ceremony. And on the pinstripes, you saw this, Jenny, where the names of all these different um, black people have been killed. And so I started, of scrolling through to find the inevitable white person who says, well, what about all the white police officers who were killed and the, okay. these kinds of things? And I start engaging them. And I ask, would you be willing to talk with me offline about your views so that I can practice these skills and provide examples to other people? Because I think we need to be having these conversations. And as you might guess, very few people are willing to actually show up face to face and do that but I think it's um disarming to have somebody not cancel them to have somebody say tell me more about that what Mm -hmm. makes you think that way tell me where that first you know to to actually inquire in a non-judgmental way um and it's a skill it's a skill that I've been trying to work on in myself Mm -hmm. and help other people work on too Jill I'm I mean you just with that little bit you just shared captured several things one I think why we connect so easily and and so well. Um, and this idea, you know, when I was listening to you, Lynn, I wrote down a few things, this idea of weaponization, of gatekeeping, of absolutism. And I'm sure there are other words that we can think of that kind of capture this. And yes, online, it's a, maybe it's a, it's exacerbated or more, more severe, but it's also in person or, you know, in other communities as well. And, you know, this idea that I love, you know, what you said, uh, Lynn, like, I have to stamp this out. And to me, you know, I've been doing this work and I, you know, I know Jill, you know, my story. I don't know if everyone else knows my story. You know, my dad was a, was a gay man 
and he was HIV positive and he died of AIDS in 2000. He was a white man, so this wasn't about race, but my entry, entry, you know, entryway into kind of social justice work and equity work was through, through that. And so for many years, I was your classic social justice warrior who was not interested in nuance, partly because I didn't realize that there was nuance. It was good or it was bad. But now with my infinite wisdom and maturity, <laughs> right no but seriously with 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 time you look back and or i look see myself how i used to see things and interact with people or not and i see like what you described lynn as as that you know i see things like well my anti-racist educator told me it's like that's great that you have an anti-racist educator but like just one one perspective and that's kind of your thing like what does that mean my anti-racist educator Mm -hmm. so there's these very kind of almost like myopic, almost maybe in some cases like performative, like the, the, the commitment is genuine, but the actual embodiment isn't there yet. So I think that speaks to what you were talking about, Jill, like how do we recognize that and absorb that critique, that criticism, that weaponization, that, that gatekeeping, right? That, that kind of black or white, no pun intended, right? Um, and I think that's those are the skills. Those are super important skills for anyone doing this work, whether, you know, like us who were kind of, you know, teaching others, facilitating others, uh, holding spaces for others, or whether you're just kind of, you know, new into this world and you want to be part of it. Like those are really important skills because it's, it's easy to, to just to go, go the, uh, the council route and it's rarely helpful or, or, you know, productive. Yeah. When people do go that route, I often get the feeling that they probably share a lot of my commitments. You know, they probably want to see the same kind of world yeah, yep. that I want to see. So we we probably, even if that person might in this moment feel like they need to shut something down, um, I'm trying to think of how to put it. Like we're, we're probably on the same side here. And when I see that happening, I try to have some level of, of empathy when that happens. And I'm not saying that this is always the case. But I think that a lot of people who are coming with a fierce kind of let's shut this down energy, I think a lot of those people are pretty new to white anti-racist practice. And I don't think that that's always true at all. But I think a lot of these people, they're just coming into figuring out what it means to be a white anti-racist. They're in a process of learning. And one of the things that they've learned is important to do is to shut down something that seems white centering. Or, or, or whatever, you know? Right. So to me, I'm kind of like, you know, this is the stage that they happen to be at in their own white anti-racist evolution. And if anything, they probably need people in their lives or community in their lives to help them work through that and get to the next stage where they can actually be more productive at doing what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Well, Jared, you talked well about said, being the yeah. bomb thrower at one point. Totally. I, I was, I was throwing bombs at anyone who would, who would, uh, you know, sit under the grenade and, and you know, get exploded. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We've yeah. We've all and, been there, I think. Well, I think Lynn, uh, Lynn, you captured, I think, and maybe this is true for, for all of us. I, and not that I, I don't see myself, I don't consider myself or see myself or title myself as an expert, right? It's not like I have the answers, but what I do have is, you know, at this point, about 22 years of of experience doing this work. What you just, you know, captured, Lynn, I think is exactly 
it for, for me personally, like I can go back 15 years in my life or maybe even 10 years. Right. And go, yep, that's kind of how my mind was working. And so using myself as a barometer, like to see, you know, what my path has been, you know, as Jill said, you know, I do use that, that language. Like I was a bomb thrower. I saw something that was, you know, wrong, you know, in air quotes or bad. And I was going to, I was going to fix it. I was going to stop it. Or if I couldn't stop it, I was going to let everyone, you know, know that it wasn't okay. And that, that I wasn't going to stand for it to what end though, I was much less effective. Uh, people, it was easier to dismiss because there weren't very many, if, if any people like we're describing, as you said, Lynn, like that say, Hey, tell me more about why you feel so strongly about that. Right. I'm sure there were people, but I think a lot of it was, you know, just getting like, wait a second, let me be reflective here. Like, is this actually working? No, it's not. So I think that's, you know, to see ourselves in other white folks is really part of this work without shaming or judging, but recognizing. So, yeah, I'm glad you, you bring that in, uh, Jill. So um, I also wanted to flag, you know, we're all being human is to be a receiver and transmitter of the culture or cultures that we grow up in. And all of us in the United States of America are steeped in white supremacist, capitalist, heteropatriarchy. And part of growing up and finding that that puts us out of alignment with our values is the kind of time and labor intensive process of noticing how we reproduce those ways of being, those artifacts within ourselves, like with individualism, like with this intense right, wrong polarization and making people wrong. And I, you know, I got off on being right when I was younger. I got off on being able to talk circles around people. And it didn't occur to me that this itself was part of the, the culture that I was purporting to transform, mm. and that my way of showing up in the world was not transformative. It was, in fact, reinscribing that. So it takes time to realize these things mm -hmm. and practice to undo them and find other ways of showing up when you're, you know, you recognized and rewarded for being an arrogant know-it-all. I like to think that we can all change, that we are not stuck ideologically, uh, emotionally, physically in the places that we find ourselves in. And I, I don't see that a lot in our movement work as there is. I really, I connect a lot to the words accountability abuse and that once we hold someone accountable, we then, how do we move forward and pass that to say, yes, uh, rehabilitation, reconnection and restoration have happened. And we are now mindful of the past and we're still going forward into a future that is co-created and that is loving and empathetic and compassionate and full. And I'm wondering how we center more forgiveness and more grace in our work, not only for ourselves, but for the people that we're working with and for the people that we're trying to be in connection and community with moving this conversation forward. Lauren, could you just give a brief definition of accountability abuse? I think I understand what you mean, but I'm not 100% sure. Sure. So it's fairly similar and connected to cancel culture and that we want to hold you accountable, but then we will never let that accountability un uh We'll never, we're never, we're never going to take our foot off the gas. You will forever be held responsible for these actions. And so that would be the abuse of holding accountability abuse within that. Um, we'll also put in the show notes uh, some really great pieces that have uh, 
been generated around accountability abuse so that folks can take a look and, and read that because it's a really fascinating kind of lens and understanding cancel culture as as a form of abuse. I I love that, Lauren, and I like I like the way you described it. It it's closely, you know, I mentioned weaponizing before. It's kind of like weaponizing, you know, truth or wep- weaponizing, you know, history. Uh, and uh, and I don't want to go down the like, you know, oh, white people are abused, you know, like reverse racism <laughs> route or anything. But I think there is that. Uh, I know I've experienced that. And and to your point earlier, Jenny, like a lot of it online, um, especially the last couple of years, because, you know, most everything I'm, I've am i been doing is, you know, been virtual right. or, or on social media. But <laughs> yeah, it's like um, one thing I learned from like doing leadership development, this isn't really necessarily related to anti-racism work, but I bring it in is like this idea of like assuming future capability, right? And I think that speaks to, you know, maybe maybe the antithesis of what Lauren, how, how you were describing, you know, accountability abuse. Because with accountability abuse, it's like, yeah, foot on the gas, like you did this thing, mm, there's no hope for you. But assuming future capability says, hey, you know what, you messed up, you caused harm, let's talk about it. And, you know, let's see how you change. And if and when you do change, then then we're good, or at least we're on the path to, to better. Can I piggyback on that? Yeah, please. So one of the phrases that um, I've been really alive around lately is normalize repair, normalize repair. Because mm. if you look at all of you, if all of human history were, let's say, packed into 24 hours, it's only been in the last 15 minutes that we have had the luxury of canceling one another because before that you know i had to rely on your killing the bison and you gathering the berries and you making the fire and this person watching my kids while i went to gather you know fruits or something we were we have been interdependent for so long we couldn't afford to cancel each other and now we have the quote-unquote luxury we have the capability of cutting people off who we love and people are quicker to go and repair their cars and their computers and their broken fingernails than they are a freaking relationship that they love. And it breaks my heart. So I want us to normalize repair. And oftentimes people are more afraid, they build up in their minds that coming face to face and working things out. And I'm speaking here as someone who's done a lot of mediation um, and seen that you know when people are willing to come to the table that's 88% of the work. And the rest is, is pretty easy to do with some skills, some, some basic skills. Um, but people build up in their minds that somehow um, coming face to face with a person that they have a conflict with is going to be bad. It's going to be harmful. It's going to be painful. And usually they feel so much better at the end. And so I want to find ways to normalize repair, which is a whole other a lot of thinking, a lot of projects, a lot of spilled, a lot of pixels on that one. And I think it's deeply, deeply connected to um, what we're talking about here and how we can get through some of the disconnects that anti-racist white people find ourselves in. Looking at the time, we're going to go into our last question, unfortunately, fortunately, uh, as we continue moving on with our work and our lives. Uh, So I want to actually, if we can do a go around moment, because I would love for everyone to respond to this one. It's a two-parter. If you want to share a little bit about where we can find you and the work that we can engage with you in outside of the podcast, please let us know that here. And then as part two, 
you've got this very literal microphone in front of you uh, with a whole bunch of presumably white people listening to this podcast. What do you want to tell white people from you to them? What do, what do you want them to hear? What do you want them to know? Um, or what do you want to ask white people in this moment? So I know those are second questions a little bit bigger than the first one. So, <laughs> so people can follow my work at crossculturalsolidarity.com. That is also the home of the White Anti-Racist Ancestry Project. So people can find those resources there as well. Uh, there are multiple ways to support the project. And when people do, they also stay plugged into all the forthcoming resources and events. So that's one way to stay in touch with, uh, with what's going on. And what I would say is because I'm focused on white anti-racist history, and I see that history as providing sources of guidance and inspiration uh, for white people doing white anti-racist work, what I would hope listeners would walk away with would be, you know, I hope that they might find some guidance and inspiration in the history that I'm lifting up. But beyond that, I hope that you feel into your own, uh, what, what you need in your life to feel inspired, to feel sustained, to feel your own growth. And I hope that whatever it is that you find that. That's really lovely, Lynn. Thank you. So um, you people can find me at Jared Carroll. It's J-A-R-E-D-K-A-R-O-L.com. Um, and there's a link to the book that I wrote uh, that came out last fall called A White Guy Confronting Racism. You can also go to that, awhitegayconfrontingracism.com. And not super active on social media. I do have a uh, an Instagram handle, a white guy confronting racism, mostly active on LinkedIn, although decreasingly these days, because I actually have a full-time job uh, in this space, by the way, uh, at a great company called translator.company. Um, so those are, those are, there's where you can find me. What do I want white people to know? Um, I want white folks listening to this to recognize that racism impacts you just as much as it does a maybe not just as much, but it, it impacts us all. And that this isn't about, you know, saving or, uh, you know, uh, it's not an altruistic thing or a philanthropic thing to save or do better for black people or for brown people or for other people of color and recognize that it's about humanity, including your own. It's about healing, as we talked about earlier, including your own. And so tap into that part about um, when you're not feeling your and others' full humanity, when you feel like there's something missing. I don't have an answer for you. I don't think any of us does. But tap into that and sit with that and see what is it calling you to do differently. I like that, Jared Carroll. <laughs> Thank you, Jill. <laughs> So um, I am at evolutionaryworkplace.com. I also, my medium.com work sometimes appears on Afrosapiophile. I love that word. Um, I am seeking agent representation right now for a book I'm working on called Skin in the Game, How White People Benefit from Dismantling White Supremacy. Um, and I sometimes post on LinkedIn as well. And I have a group on uh, Facebook called Whites Dismantling White Supremacy, which everyone is welcome to join. 
for white people, I, I want to invite you to get curious, especially around the places where you find yourself, you notice your body feeling tense, or you feel ashamed or defensive. I want to invite you to get curious, really loud spaciousness to just be with, be with what's happening in your body. Because I think that's where all of this repair starts. How is white supremacy mythology living in our own bodies in so many different ways and to not fight it or judge it, but simply be with it. It's a really lovely way to end this. A lovely note, Jill. So thank you so much, Jill, Jared, Lynn. This has been an absolute pleasure and dream come true to bring you all together in this space and talk about very important topics of dismantling white supremacy as white people. Thank you all so much for joining us today. It's so great to see people out in the world doing this work. Oh my God, right. However it differs from how we would do it or they would, you know, each of them would do it. It's so hope inducing that we have folks out there who are willing to put all of their lives into, you know, anti-racist work, but again, not on the doorsteps of people of color, Mm -hmm. not putting white healing, you know, taking it out of their court letting them do all the things that they have to do to even survive in this world. That that's really wonderful. I, and the thing that keeps blowing my mind is I would not have known about them unless I was doing this work where I intentionally changed my search key terms. Right. But that had to do with like my own awakening as a white person trying to find and commune with other white people about dismantling white supremacy and shame as a white person with other right. white people right i never ever would have thought about that if it wouldn't yeah. wasn't for you so i never would have known they existed <laughs> for you right well and i think that's because i was so deeply invested in this like anti-racist woke culture mm-hmm. that was no, no no actually white people don't have any answers and cannot be trusted right. shouldn't be trusted yeah, and so I think that that was this, like really lovely thing about the space was seeing and experiencing these mm-hmm. three really beautiful humans mm-hmm. like doing this work, showing up for each other and showing up for ourselves. Yeah, like they know each other and like hang out and do stuff and like, yeah. you know, that's not many of them are on social media. I noticed. Right. That was also really telling. Like, what does that mean? Should we take the spillway off of social? You know, I've thought about asking you about that. Hmm. Like, is it really helping anyone? Or is it just creating a space for people to, for, you know, for lack of a better word, trolls to come in and be like, "Eh," you know? Like, is that taking, but then also then you limit, you kind of limit your audience, right? but then also <laughs> what kind of audience 
do you have from that? I think to me, it's like the TikTok phenomenon of, I didn't know that other people existed until I was on TikTok that like act, think, believe, behave, have the same ridiculous idiosyncrasies. Yeah. As I do until TikTok was like, oh, wow, you and thousands of other people have this exact same similar experience. I wouldn't have known that unless I was on that social media. Mm -hmm. And so for me, being on social media Mm -hmm. is also this like, I don't know, this like beacon to say, hey, here's another white person trying to do this work. Like, yeah. let's join. And and I have found some like really beautiful people through that experience. But I think, and also the spillway is this giant, like, um, like foam pit for people to jump into with their anger and their hurt and their frustrations. Mm-hmm. And as confusing as it is for me sometimes, I know actually, oh, well, this isn't about me. This is, this is about them uh, and their experience with their own concept of being white or whiteness or white supremacy. Right, right. And that's why I think that the spillway channels are so important. Uh, social media channels is because it is sometimes the only foam pit that people are jumping into that there's going to be another white person there with their hand outstretched saying, here, let me help you out of this foam pit. Like you just needed a face plant in here, get it out. Um, and come on, like, let's just talk about this. It's like Jill was saying, uh, like going through the comments, like, actually, let's talk about this. Like, tell me more about this. Where, why do you feel this way? Or, or what's leading you to believe these things? Uh, let's talk about it. Let's talk it out. And if we don't have a space to talk it out, if we're just going to continually uh, block and cancel and unfriend anyone who we disagree with, then we're just going to, you know, devolve further and further into our echo chambers. And uh, devolving into that space isn't really helping anyone. Uh, it, it's hurting us in the long run. We have to figure out a way back to each other. And sometimes... Just kind of make an ass of yourself to get there. 